Morning, church. I'm stepping down off the stage and I'm thinking to myself, man, I really wish that I were smart enough to be able to play bass and sing at the same time. Like I'm just, it's just not there. I don't, I mean, there are people that do it and I'm impressed by that, but I, I have not yet figured that skill out. I don't know. Chris also plays bass, or are you able to sing when you if required? Well see, he's smarter than me. He's on bass playing. All right. So <laughs> we are going to be continuing in the Sermon on the Mount today. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. I've entitled this, I Swear, uh, as Jesus is talking about oaths here and what it means to interact, not just um, with those that we, we take an oath around or, or what, but how we interact with others as well. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. You'll notice that it will be up on the screen for you as well. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Again, you have heard it said of, to those of old, <clears throat> You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that, or anything more than this, comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you again so much for the day that you've given to us. Thank you for this time we have to be in your word. I thank you that we have um, the time to go through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as a congregation together and, and, and look at his teachings. And we pray, Lord, that as we, we do that, that, that you would remind us that it is his teachings, that it's not from Chris or I or, or, or from anyone else, that it is you speaking to us through your word. Father, I pray that you would continue to challenge us, you would convict us, you would draw us closer to you as we worship now through the hearing and the response of your word. Put me aside and let you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Right. I was thinking about this, like this is oaths. I remember as a kid, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? You'd say all these sorts of little silly things. Or, or there was a kid in our neighborhood who used to say, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I remember hearing him say that growing up. Or, I swear upon my mother's grave. You hear that one. My personal favorite is, I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. Right? Remember the song? I, that was one of the ones that came to my mind. But, huh? <laughs> Stick with bass? All right, thanks. I appreciate that. But all of these phrases we've heard, right? And then when somebody wants to emphasize that there, there's truthfulness to their statement. It's funny to me how people will do this, and, and we, we figured this out, right? That I'm going to make this kind of a statement. I'm lying, I'm dying, I, I swear on my mother's grave. Whatever they say, we have figured out that the people who need to swear this way, to, to emphasize that they're telling the truth, that 
they're probably stretching the truth and not living the truth they've been told. That this, they have, if you have to put that much extra emphasis in the fact that you're telling the truth, maybe, maybe there's a history there of you not telling the truth. Maybe, maybe you just aren't telling the, tr- the truth now. We see this. Right? We, we know that when we speak to people, that we're not to lie to them. Right? This, is, this is one of the little things we, we start teaching kids early. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Right? But, but also not to just tell the truth, but to not... You can speak to somebody and, and tell the truth, but not tell the whole truth. To not tell everything. To not be completely honest. Right? People will start using this kind of a sliding scale for honesty. Right? We've heard, no one's hurt by a little white lie. Well, we, we should care very much about being honest, and we should be very cautious to be completely truthful. And as followers of Christ, there, there should be no blurring of the lines here. There should be no confusion between what is truth and, and what is dishonest. And this is a problem that Jesus is addressing here in this section on the Sermon on the Mount. That He's reminding us that our words matter, and that they should always be true. People should know us as Christians, as followers of Christ, as truthful people. We should be known for our truthfulness. How we speak to people will show how we treat people. And how we speak to people will reflect reflect in how we deal with people. Again, as we look at this, it's been interesting. We we talked about this in small group today, that that as we look at everything that Jesus has talked about, the, the... him coming to fulfill the law in, in verse 17 and in his dealings with anger, starting with verse 21, and, and the lust and divorce issue in verses 27 and 31. All of this stuff here is, is really about finding loopholes a little bit. And here Jesus is, again, closing the loopholes rightfully. But we're also finding out that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart with all of these things. The, the, what's in our heart is going to make it out into our interactions with other people. And Jesus is, is getting to that here. He starts this section off by talking about oaths, specifically taking an oath using the name of the Lord or some sort of substitute for the name of the Lord, right? We, we live in a world where we hear things like alternative facts or fake news or, or, or whatever. I, I had a coworker for a while that when we would be in a staff meeting and something would come out and it would be different from, from what we thought it was going to be, from what it was said in the staff meeting, we'd just look at it and go, well, truth has changed again right? And, and this is not how things should be. This is not right, right? Unfortunately, we're in a society now, we're taking a man at his word isn't as concrete as it used to be. It's become kind of quaint, and, and, and some folks would even say outdated, but it's not a new concept. This was, this was happening at the time of Jesus, uh, Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun, and, and we're seeing that here. This is not this new concept that, that this was happening in Jesus' time. These rabbis, these scribes, these priests, the Pharisees, they were all looking to find loopholes within the Word. And they would look for these loopholes, and they would try to find loopholes in how they would interpret the law. When Jesus says, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, he's, he's using a common paraphrase. He's not even using the real scripture. He's using the paraphrase that everybody would use from Leviticus 19.12 that says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. I am your God. This is what he would say. And, And the scribes would kind of make some distinctions between an individual's speech under oath 
and a person's casual speech. And then when there was individual speech under oath, then they would kind of make a distinction between oaths made to the Lord and oaths not made to the Lord or in His name. And, and they had this rule that no matter what, if you made an oath to God, you had to keep it. This was a commitment that could not be broken. But it was not the same level of commitment in dealing with human relations. If I made an oath to to Chris to do something and something came up and I had to break that oath, that was okay because I didn't swear it unto God that I would do it. That was okay in the eyes of the rabbis. But if I said, I, I, I promise you in the name of our Lord, Chris, that I will be there and I broke that oath, then I'm not just sinning against Chris now. Now I'm also sinning against God. But it took that kind of level of thing. Like, looking for loopholes. Silly, ridiculous little loopholes is what they're looking at. And, and as they're doing this, they're creating this, this weird wiggle room in these oaths. And, and I want you to think about the attitude they're having here, right? The, the attitude here is, is this kind of, did I really say it that way kind of attitude? There's another place where we see a did he really say it that way kind of attitude. And that's with the serpent in the garden. And he asks Eve, did the Lord really say that? This is a really incredibly dangerous way of us thinking. And it's a really incredibly dangerous way of us acting towards one another as well. And Jesus is calling that out. See, the rabbis of Jesus' time put more emphasis on speaking the truth to God rather than speaking the truth to everyone else. I was to tell God the truth, but he was the most important person, so make sure he hears the truth. Everybody else... Don't be dishonest, but, you know, they don't need to know everything. Kind of mindset. They placed an, abs an emphasis on absolute honesty, on uh, no real emphasis in, in absolute honesty in communicating with people. And, and that, again, opens us up to being able to break commitments to people when it's convenient to do so. They were, again, looking for these loopholes. And re Jesus is rejecting all of this bad logic. He's telling his followers to take no oaths at all. And certainly do not profane the name of God by using his name in promises that you're not going to fulfill. Just have your words be true, period. Speak truth. Be honest. Be honest in your dealings. Be honest in your, in your words. Back up what you're going to say. If you are consistently honest and you're consistently truthful in your words and you're consistently truthful and you're consistently honest in your dealings, then an oath or a swear of some sort is completely unnecessary. And being consistently honest, you also give more credibility to what you're going to say. The people know not to say, I swear to God. Right? They, they know this. as That would be completely taking the Lord's name in vain. That would be profaning the name of God. And, and that would be a serious oath. And they would know they would have to keep it. But the people were using euphemisms and, and substitutions. They were saying things like, I swear to heaven, or I swear to earth, or I swear to Jerusalem, or may my head be cut off if I'm lying. Right? Silly, similar things we hear today. Jesus says these substitution statements are just as profane as swearing directly in the name of God. None of these gives the people the loopholes they want. Right? 
Heaven is God's throne room. It's where he's present. If you're swearing by heaven, it's the same as swearing by God because he's there. Earth is God's creation. It's where he rests his feet. If you're swearing by earth, you're swearing where God is, is there. If you're swearing by Jerusalem, it is God's holy city where he is the great king. He is there. You can't even swear by your own life because you have no authority over your own life anyway. God alone does. Jesus says it in this way. He says, um, you cannot make one hair white or black. Even, even the hairs on your head are under the sovereign jurisdiction of our Lord. You have no say in those. And Jesus reminds us of this, right? That this is all God's sovereign prerogative. Everything we say and do takes place under God's omniscient eye. He sees all, he knows all, and everything you say or do is witnessed by God. And everything you say and do should be good and true. Consider what Jesus says in, in Matthew 23 as he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater? the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altars swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who deals or dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Reminding us not to be thinking of these substitutionary ways of doing it, that our honesty is most important and being direct and honest and lovingly so. Verse 37, Jesus tells us to let our yes mean yes and our no mean no. We're not to go looking around for loopholes that lets us get out of things like the leaders of this era were looking for. They, they were leading people down a path of dishonesty. And, it, and if all we are to say is to be good and true, the most important good and true thing that we can speak of is the gospel. And when I look at this, I see this. I see we want our witness to be credible. And if our witness is to be credible, then everything we have to say before it has to be good and true. It must be the most credible thing we ever say because it's the most honest and true thing we say. Now, you might be asking yourself, now, wait a second. What about like taking an oath in office or, or taking an oath in court? How, how does this apply here? Jesus says, I tell you not to take an oath at all, right? How does this work? Well, I've done both. I've had to take an oath in office uh, and I've had to, had to swear and verify in court at the same time to testify. And it is a weird thing. Both. I'm not going to lie to you. Right? But what do we do? Well, this is where it's going to become a kind of a point of personal conviction for you. Right? There are some brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, old school Anabaptists, some Quakers, some of these folks, that, that they will look at this passage and they will say that they can't do these sorts of things. That they, they, they take it that seriously. Right? Um, Charles Quarles, uh, in a commentary he wrote called Sermon on the Mount, Restoring Christ's Message to the modern church, addresses this a little bit. 
And he sees Jesus not forbidding oaths in all cases. He kind of reminds us that if we go look in Matthew chapter 26, that Jesus had to testify at his own trial. Right? We, we see him doing that. Um, we see Jesus using phrases like truly, truly, kind of reminding folks, listen, this is, this is what I really want you to put focus on here. Uh, what he sees Jesus condemning here is this habat- habitual use of oath approach in daily speech, this pattern of misleading speech that indicates you're not being honest unless you're under oath. Misleading oaths are going to be looking for loopholes, and, and, and misleading oaths that look for loopholes, they are lies. Jesus is condemning this, and he's commanding us, his followers, to not be liars. Oaths in court, oaths in office, your marital vows, right? Other oaths you would take during solemn occasions emphasize you already have some truth, and you're already there being truthful. Okay? It's just an emphasis on that truthfulness. These type of oaths would seem to be in line with biblical teaching, and I think we'd be okay there. Now, that's, again, a point of personal conviction. That's where I would be at with it. But no matter your personal conviction on these matters, be a person who speaks the truth. Be someone known for your honesty. Your honesty reflects the nature of God, and it reflects His kingdom. The strengths of your credibility in your gospel conversations when you think about that, if, I, if I'm having a conversation with you and I'm candid and I'm honest and I'm, I'm carrying in that, then when I go to have a gospel conversation with that person, they're going to understand that I'm, I'm doing this because it's true and it breaks my heart for them to not know the truth that I know and I want them to know that. It shows that you truly belong to God. Jesus then moves from our speech and honesty and he moves to how we treat others. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that he, it's, as I'm looking at all of these, how he just so beautifully weaves this together for us. That how we think about things, how all these things interact and how they work. And he, he moves from our speech and our honesty to talk about how we treat others. And he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, which says, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This law that's in Deuteronomy 19 is about purging evil from the midst of Israel. It's also about not having uh, inappropriate punishment for the crime, making sure that the punishment fits the crime in hand. And this was imposed by, by civil authorities in Israel. Not individuals within Israel. See, we've, we've already seen what Jesus believes about Old Testament law. He believes that it's true and good and whole, and it points to him. And he came to fulfill that. Jesus loves the Old Testament law, so he's not opposed to this part of the law. But what he's opposed to is individuals using this as a means for personal justice and retaliation and revenge rather than civil justice here. God's law is not meant for us to ever use it as personal vengeance. And people were doing that. People still, unfortunately, do that. Right? And he turns this idea on people's head, right? Like this idea of, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, 
Do not resist the one who is evil. What? This had to be a head scratcher for folks. Do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus is, is calling us here to think a little deeper about this. He's calling us to not treat everyone as though they were our enemy. Hmm. Right? We should as much as possible. We need to relate to everyone we can as our neighbor. We are to be kind rather than harsh. We are to be loving rather than hateful. Revenge is not an option if you belong to God. It's not an option. Now, I've been thinking about this just kind of personally. And the idea of treating people as our neighbors rather than our enemies. And I fear that there are many within the church, big C, overarching maybe, uh, churchianity rather than maybe Christianity, right? That, that see those who are not in Christ, these folks that see those who are not in Christ as enemies rather than our neighbors. Here's the problem with that. If we see those who are not in Christ as our enemies rather than our neighbors, we run the same risk that Jonah had in the way he saw the Ninevites. When I think about that, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he didn't like the Ninevites necessarily, but because he knew God was good and gracious to forgive them if they repented. And he didn't think they deserved God's grace and repentance. If we are treating people around us who are not in Christ like our enemies, if we think about them like our enemies rather than our neighbors, we might be in our hearts saying, Racha, you fool, what Jesus talks about with anger earlier on. If we're seeing that in our hearts rather than seeing them as, a, as an image bearer of the great and mighty God, then we need, to, we need to stop. And we need to hear the gospel of grace that leads to faith and salvation because they need to hear the gospel of grace that leads to faith and salvation. You've got to make sure we're thinking that way. This is also where we, we need to, to take some time to heed the teaching of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 12, 17-21, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Revenge is not an option as a follower of Christ. You, you cannot have a, I don't get mad, I get even mindset in Jesus Christ. We are to walk the way he walked and we are to follow his example, even when it gets hard. And I think about that, even when it gets hard, it didn't get much harder for anybody than the way Jesus walked this out. And he's going to give us some examples here about, about how it will be hard to not resist, right? The one who's evil. The first is, is if you get backhanded, he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other one also. Jesus is focusing here about individual conduct. The, the type of slap Jesus is referring to is, is an insult and a dishonor slap. 
And if it's coming to you from on your right cheek, it means it's coming to you from a cross. Right? Typically right-handed people, they're, they're going to go this way to get you on that right cheek. It's going to be a backhanded slap. When, when I thought about this, the first thing I kind of thought of was that insult and honor slap. It, I, I grew up on Saturday morning Looney Tunes. Right when when Bugs would take off his gloves and he'd smack Elmer or he'd smack Daffy, it was that kind of slap. It it was not necessarily a strike meant to show a imminent physical danger or imminent threat, as much as it was a, a, a slap that would challenge your honor, challenge your masculinity. It was an insulting, shocking, reaction-seeking slap. Jesus tells us to take that challenge and not strike back. And not strike back so as to not escalate the violence. The word slap here is the same words Matthew uses in chapter 26 when Jesus is blindfolded and on his knees before the Roman soldiers and they're slapping him. The slaps would would have been insulting and painful, yet we see Jesus being the perfect model of how to graciously respond to the abuse of others. There's no retaliation there's no forgiveness on his lip. There, there was, sorry, there was forgiveness on his lips. And this is a hard thing. Now, again, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ look at this and, and, and see this as a call to pacifism in all cases. I don't know that I can see it that way. Um, this isn't necessarily a call to pacifism. It's not necessarily a call to refrain from protecting ourselves or protecting our loved ones from harm. This certainly is not a, a, a call for blank, a blanket excusing of violent behavior or violent crimes. This is a call for us to view those around us as neighbors, showing neighborly love and putting away anger, malice, and vengeance. It's a reminder that justice and forgiveness are not necessarily mutually exclusive. That's hard sometimes. There can be justice and there can be forgiveness, and justice can be punishment even while forgiveness has happened. He needs us to to think on these things. In verse 40, Jesus moves on to teach us that when people are demanding of us, we are to let grace abound. He uses this example of a frivolous and ridiculous lawsuit. If anyone would sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So tunics. Tunics were the underlayer, not necessarily the undergarment, but the underlayer, kind of your first layer of clothing in in this time. Um, And it was an item of clothing that was desirable. It was often woven in one piece. They were very nice, typically, uh, made of wool, made of linen, um, and they were used actually for payment or for bartering. We literally, it's kind of where we get the term, given the shirt off your back. It was literally that. They were giving this, this long tunic that would go just past your knees, giving that person that thing in payment for something else. But then he talks about the cloak or the coat, that outer garment. This garment was even more valuable than the tunic. It was, it was not just the coat that would keep you warm in the winter or keep you, the rain off of you in, in, in bad weather, the wind from beating down. It was also used for bedding for those who traveled or had to sleep outside for whatever there was. There's actually Old Testament law prohibiting the poor from being made to surrender their cloaks if they're unable to pay a debt. They can get rid of everything they have except for that cloak 
that would go over them. Jesus, though, is asking his followers to go above and beyond the law and surrender your cloak. He's calling on us to respond to accusers and adversaries with grace and then mercy as well. Do what the law requires and then take it one step further. Let God be your defense provider. Have such an unselfish attitude that the world would be shocked and amazed at how you can do this. In verse 20, 41, he then asks us to be willing to go the extra mile. It's a colloquialism that we've all heard and used for generations, but here it is, the origins of go the extra mile, right here in Scripture. So part of us we need to remember is that Israel was an occupied territory at the time of Jesus. They were, they were subjected by the Romans, and the people of Israel had to be often compelled into the service of the occupying Roman army. We think about the story of the Passion and Jesus walking um, to Calvary, and he drops and he, he drops the cross, and the Roman soldiers grab Simon the Cyrene and say, "You, you carry it for him." He was being forced, compelled into service by the Roman, and he had nothing to do. He had no say in this. He had to do it, and the Jews of the time hated it. It was demeaning. It was humiliating. It was demoralizing. It was reminding them harshly that they were a subjugated people that they had gone from being really the crown jewel of the ancient near east to being just another territory in the roman in the roman empire and they hated it and the law, and the mile here that jesus mentions is is the law's minimum requirement for the people the romans were gracious in their laws and saying, if you're pressed into our service to carry a load or, or to be a pack animal for us, you can only go a mile. And when that mile's over, you can drop the load. And we'll find some other poor Jewish guy to make carry the, re- the next mile. Jesus is saying, no, don't do this. If you're being pressed into assisting the Roman military by carrying a load for them, go that thousand steps. That's how they measured a mile in that day. And then Jesus says, Fulfill the requirements of the law, but then instead of dropping it, go ahead and go another one. Count 2,000 steps. Do it voluntarily. The first mile is out of obligation. The second mile is out of compassion. This is a gospel act. This is an opportunity for gospel conversations. And it's not just compassion for the Roman soldier. It's compassion for the next person that would maybe be put under the the compelling of the Roman soldier. This is a gospel act. As you are are helping out somebody, you now have the opportunity to tell someone you serve because you have been served. You love because you have been loved. You can bear this burden because you have had a greater burden borne on the cross. All of this is a gospel act. Jesus then calls us to be ready to help those in need. Give to those who beg from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is talking about helping those who have a a desperate and legitimate need here. This is someone hurting and in need of help, and, and you have the means to assist them. Jesus encourages that. 
And we see through both the Old and the New Testaments that we have a responsibility to care for the poor that are around us. The Jews at Jesus' time would have probably, especially the men of Jewish society, would have preferred death over being relegated down to, to begging. If anyone or in someone in Jesus' time has, has come begging, that they are at the end of their rope. They have lost all hope in everything. They, they don't need a lecture about finding work. They probably just simply need that meal. Over the years, uh, we've had many requests as a church to help people out with hardship situations. It requires discernment. I'm not going to say it doesn't. Um, one of the things that as a, as a body of Christ we started doing is we stopped giving out cash. We just didn't. right? Not that we didn't want to help someone, but it was a discernment issue. If someone came in claiming they needed food, the number of folks that I watched would leave Sunday school, go in their car, go to Walmart or Kroger, and buy a week's worth of groceries for that family was amazing. If they needed gas, the number of folks that I saw that would get up and go drive down the hill, hit the Circle S gas station down here and make sure that tank was filled up, right? If they needed a utility bill paid, can we get your monthly statement? We'll cut the check from our, and make sure that it gets where it needs to go. We'll take care of that. And when I saw those things happening, what was also beautiful is more times than not, it was directly from members of the church, not out of the church's budget, not out of the coffers. It was folks who saw this need and took care of it. One of the things that we saw when, when all of this was kind of going on and we would, we would help directly this way is, is people who were genuinely looking for assistance, who were genuinely down and out, who genuinely needed these helps, man, they would be so thankful, so grateful. There would often be hugs and tears. Folks who were not so genuine would often decline that kind of help offered, unfortunately. Again, it's not that we weren't willing to help those in need, but it was about using the resources we have wisely. It was not about being selfish or stingy. It was about using what you have to minister best to those in need. And we did that. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, he says so beautifully well, be generous. A miser is no follower of Jesus. Remember, we, we help others because we have been helped so much by our Heavenly Father. We may not know physical poverty, but church, if you have been redeemed, you have known spiritual poverty and you have come out of it. And it was Jesus who graciously lifted you out of it. I look at this passage about oaths and retaliation and, and helping people and giving tunics and all of this stuff. And as I look at this passage, what I see here in all of it is a building the opportunity to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. We, we start by being completely honest in all that we say and do. We're honest in all of our dealings. We, we speak truth to others knowing that God witnesses everything we say and do. We are people who serve others sacrificially. We don't look for retaliation or vengeance. We look at everybody as an opportunity to share the gospel. We see them as neighbors made in the image of our God. We treat them that way with dignity and respect. When demands are placed on us, we, we see it as an opportunity to show grace 
because we've had grace shown to us. We are generous and willing to go the extra mile because God was generous and was very patient with us. If this is is a lifestyle you live in and people see you living this, you have such a great opportunity to share the gospel with others. We can tell people that we do all that we do because of what has already been done for us. Again, we know. We know where we are. We know that we are a sinful and rebellious people. We know that we have rebelled against God and His truth. And and we know that we deserve death and eternal separation from His favor. But we also know that God in His love for His creation provided a way for the rebels to become saints. Jesus in human flesh came and lived among us. In his life here on earth, he fulfilled all the law of God that we could not. He takes our sin, our shame, and he places it on the cross with his body. And in doing this, he rescues us from our own sinful ways. He willingly does this, willingly pays for our sin by sacrificing himself for our sake. Then the beautiful part of it is is he was raised from the dead to provide the only way for us to be rescued and restored into right relationship with God. And it's simple. We just ask Jesus to forgive us and rescue us. When we feel that stirring in our hearts, we feel that stirring of him calling on us, we just say, yes, I see now. Forgive me, rescue me. And he does. And when he does it, he makes us new. He makes us new. God, through Jesus, renews all aspects of our lives. When we have experienced that newness, then we want to live like Jesus and let others experience that newness as well. Today, when we look at this, being honest, going the extra mile, not taking retaliation, all of these are about experiencing the newness of life that we have through Jesus Christ creating opportunities as we seek to live like him for others to hear the gospel so they may also know him and live like him as well. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you. Thank you so much for the word you've given to us today. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this, we see we see all that you're asking us to do here in, in these nine verses or so as as a way to live our life so that we can better declare the gospel of Jesus to others. Help us do that. Encourage us to, to take the word of truth to others who need to hear it. To to just be honest in all of our dealings. To see people around us as neighbors and to treat them as image bearers so that we can present the gospel to them in a way that is real and impactful. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things.